Good morning. Um, excited to yeah, be here with you guys. I can't think of a better way um, to enter into a time of hearing God's word than the reminder that God has been victorious. Um, that we sit here today as a result of what God has done on our behalf. And it wasn't our doing, but it was out of his grace and out of his generosity that we get to gather together and just sing back songs to testify about the good works that he's done. So uh, before we start, let's go ahead and uh, pray one more time, asking God uh, for God's help, and then we'll dive right into his word. Father, there are moments where we're just so overwhelmed that we don't have many words to say back to you, God. All we can really ask for is that you would be gracious to us, that we'd be reminded of your faithful love and your abundant compassion that you've had, that you've had on us, God, and that this would just be merely a time where we get to look backwards at your goodness and we get to look up to you as our hope. I pray that you would use your word, Lord, to expose us, God. That's a scary word to be exposed, but I pray that you would also keep in mind that oftentimes you have or always or you have always broken your people in order to build them back up. Would we be reminded that you are a restorer of all things, God, including when we find ourselves at the lowest of the lows? Holy Spirit, would you move in this place? Holy Spirit, would you demonstrate your power, Father, that people would see a demonstration of the work that you can do as a result, not of eloquent speech, but as a result of transformed lives. Father, we trust that you can do what you say you can do, that your word is powerful, and so we ask that you would use it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a bright Sunday morning in 18th century London, and a man named Robert Robinson's mood was anything but sunny. As he walked along the streets, he saw people hurrying and scurrying along, trying to make their way to church. And it brought about these memories about the time when he felt close to God. The sound of church bells reminded him of the years where his faith, of, his faith in God was strong and vibrant. And yet now, over, over the years of wandering and disillusionment, he found his soul weary and dry. As Robinson walked throughout the roads, he heard the clickety-clack of a carriage coming behind him. As he looked and waved the carriage down, seeking to get a ride back to his home, he noticed that a woman was in there. Upon noticing that woman, he waved again in hopes that the carriage would just pass him by. But the woman that was in the carriage told the carriage driver to stop. As she told him to stop, she reached out and said, hey, sir, I would love to share this buggy with you if you're willing. Are you going to church? Robert paused for a moment, and in that moment, he hesitated some, but eventually said, yes, I'm headed to church. As he sat in the buggy, they began to exchange these introductions to which she heard his name, Robert Robinson. She said, that's funny, and reached into her purse and pulled out this little book, And in this book, her ribbon bookmark, she began to read the words. I was just reading some inspirational verses from this man named Robert Robinson. Is that you? And so as she handed the book to him, he began to read the words on this page. And at that moment, he couldn't really respond. It was at that moment that as he read the words that he had written years ago, he was reminded of the fact that God had done a work in his life. It was upon reading the words, come thy fount of every blessing. 
Tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. That his eyes even went further down to the bottom of the page where he saw prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. He couldn't really make it to the bottom of the page without tears brimming up to his eyes because he had known that he had wrote those words. But more importantly, he had lived those words. Prone to wonder, prone to leave the God I love. And as the woman gazed upon him, she began to understand the difficulty and the heartache that was in his heart. And she said, but you also wrote, here's my heart, I'll take and seal it. You can offer your heart today, my brother. You can offer your heart again to God today, my brother. And it was at that moment that Mr. Robinson rededicated his life and turned his heart back towards God. And it's in hearing stories like those that you and I can relate because we know that in this Christian life that there are moments where we may find ourselves on the top of the mountain. Times where our experiences and our time with God is rich and fruitful. But there are also unspoken moments darkness and isolation. There are these valleys below where we feel as though we're wandering through this wilderness and we're asking the question, God, where are you? And it's in those moments that we don't really know what to do with it. We don't need to, we don't, we don't really understand what to do with what I read in God's word of God being close and God never forsaking us. And then, but experientially, God could never feel further. And so what we do is One or two things. Either we hunker down and we try to press on forward. We try to pretend as though everything is okay. If I just hunker down all the more, I'll be all right. Things will change. Or what we do is we give into our desires and give into all, give into or give up our faith altogether. This is seen in times where we stop attending Bible studies. We stop picking up the phone from other brothers and sisters who are calling to check up on us. We shut God out completely because we stop talking to him in prayer and we stop allowing him to talk to us by reading his word. Isolation is the very thing that we believe will fix our problems. And that may sound foolish to us by hearing it right now, but that's the reality of how we function with God. That when we find ourselves in the depths of the pit. We don't look up, but we look down, thinking that our problems and our greatest need is far greater than our God. And so here what we see with David's life is what David's going to do is he's going to remind us of I've been to the bottom, but I've, I've seen God snatch me out of the pit. I can testify of the works that my sin was not greater than God's goodness and that I don't have to conceal it, but I can freely give it to him. I can confess the worst of me knowing that God will love me, and that the arms that I will receive will be open, freely giving out mercy, but first I must confess my need. And so Psalm 51 begins at a moment where David is coming off the worst decision he's probably ever made in his life. To give a little backstory, David was the son of a shepherd and a farmer. He was the youngest son, 
David was not a likely candidate to ever become king of Israel, but yet God had plans to purpose or God had purpose that David would become king of Israel. And so he starts as this shepherd boy, the youngest of nine. God exalts him to then become the king's uh, jukebox of sorts. David could play instruments, and so the king wanted to be entertained. So King Saul brings him in, and he's playing this music for the king, but then the king shows favor on David, and David becomes his armor bearer. He becomes his assistant. David, over some time, is elevated again to an opportunity where Goliath, this fierce giant of a competitor, David is the one who offers to say, hey, I will go and fight this battle. And David conquers Goliath with a slingshot. From that moment, David is, you can track David's life of victory after victory after victory. David is walking with God and he's experiencing the favor of God in every way. However, when you wind up at 2 Samuel chapter 11, David no longer experiences the victories that he had become accustomed to. David, in chapter 11, takes time off from his duties and says, I'm going to send my guys out for battle, and I'm just going to stay here and relax. And it's in that moment that David is relaxing that he wanders out on the balcony trying to catch some cool and fresh air, to which David looks over and he sees a woman bathing. You would think that David, this man after God's own heart, would turn away and run as fast as he could, but David continues to gaze upon her beauty. He continues to watch her from the distance like a peeping Tom, so much so that he tells his his servants, hey, 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 y'all, come look at that woman. Who is she? Oh, I want her. Commands them, go get her from me. So they go and they summon her. And don't think of this as David sleeping with a married woman, like a guy going to a bar and meeting a woman that he likes. Finding out later that she's married and then, completely removing the reality that she's a married woman and indulges in intimacy with her. That's not what's happening here. Think of this as an R. Kelly, Bill Cosby situation. David has all power and authority, and he summons a woman based off of that power and authority and lures her in to capture her and get what he wants. David is abusing his power. All of the things that God had given him, he now is using for his own selfish gain. David takes the woman, sleeps with the woman, and you can just imagine David saying, hey, baby, I know we didn't expect it, you didn't expect this to go down, but keep this on the low. You can't tell anybody this. And so he sends her on his way under the cover of night, only to find out later that his same servants come to him and say, David, we've got a gift for you. And in this box is a, patern- is a pregnancy test. And he finds out, whose baby is this? What y'all trying to tell me? Oh, it's Bathsheba. You can imagine at that moment of a king of Israel, a man who is heralded as this man of God, finding out that not only had he impregnated a woman outside of marriage, but he impregnated impregnated somebody else's wife. David is faced with two, two options. He can either admit his fault and confess his wrong. And suffer the consequences of his actions. Or he can try to hide it. To which he does the latter. David not once. Not twice. But three times tries to cover up his sin. 
first by calling her husband Uriah off the battlefield and telling him, hey, bro, you've been doing a great job. Why don't you go home and rest, kick it with your family a little bit, and then you can go back to work the next day. Hoping that Uriah would, after being away from his wife for so long, would engage in an intimate act of reconnection so that the pregnancy could be blamed on him. But that didn't work. David realizes that Uriah felt so loyal to the guys that were with him that he says, I'm not going to go home with my men or sleeping on the floor. I'm going to go spend time with them. So he does it a second time. Well, this time, let me get him drunk. So he invites him over to feast, eat wine and dine. Then he says, why don't you go home to rest your weary feet? To which Uriah once again stumbles out of the out of the throne room, out of the palace, but then again wakes his way back to where his soldiers were sleeping. David is running out of options now, and so what he has to do is say, okay, I've got this power and authority. Let me use it one more time to fix the situation. So he rearranges where Uriah is going to actually report to duty. He puts him on the front lines of battle, and it is there that he is able to manipulate his situation enough to where Uriah fights the battle and loses his life. David has committed murder. And in that moment, you would think, isn't that enough? Don't you think, David, when will you wake up to see that the path that, is, that you're leading down is only going to bring destruction to which David doesn't see it? David doesn't see how this spiraling out of control of his sin has caused. And so David does what he thinks a noble person or what would help him to appear to be noble. He says, oh, let me commend Uriah. He was a noble soldier. The least I could do is take his wife to become mine. And so he marries Bathsheba, thinking that in me marrying her, I could use the excuse that, oh, yeah, that's my baby. It was consensual. Consensual. It happened while we were married. But all up until that point, David thinks that he's gotten away with things. He thinks that, whew, missed, dodged the bullet. But God intervenes. God has to send a prophet to David. He has to send a man to David to give him a story that you would think the story would be obvious to David about his own sin and what he has done, but David, again, is blind. David gets angry when he hears about the man that has taken advantage of others. And the prophet has to tell David, you know, your outrage is directed in the wrong direction. David, you're that man. And it's at that point that we get the umbrella that shapes all of Psalm 51. Second Samuel 12. 13, it says that David responded to Nathan. I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan responded to David. And the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. We've been worshiping the Lord for the last, or we've been worshiping through song, through giving for the last 30, 45 minutes. And sometimes when we start to hear God's word, we want to turn on our intellect in order to understand who God is, which is a good thing. But the beauty of the Psalms is David isn't so much after us just thinking rightly about God. David is after us really allowing God to search our hearts to see where are your affections with God at? 
what David is going to do is he's going to testify from the pits of, of his brokenness and help us to see that oftentimes we are deceived when we think that a holy and perfect God could never, never extend mercy to lowly, broken sinners like you and I. David is going to say and he's going to testify to us in a song that God can be trusted with the worst of us. God can be trusted with the most broken parts of my soul. And that what he does is he stands with his arms open wide, inviting us to come into deeper intimacy with him. But the reality is that that depth of intimacy oftentimes comes on the cusp of our deepest and darkest moments. That God will allow certain things to happen in our lives in order to draw us closer. In order for us not to just be able to sing about grace and faithful love, but to be able to testify as witnesses of, I am that person who has been far and far off. I am that person who was lost and now God has brought me near. It's the testimony of a broken man. And so he begins in verses 1. He says, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love and according to your abundant compassion. I'll stop there. If we're going to ever understand how we are to um, respond in those dark, dark moments caused as a, or as a consequences of our sinful decisions, the first thing David is going to show us is that we've got to cry out. We've got to cry out to our God. He starts with, be gracious to me, God. I like how the ESV puts it because it says, have mercy on me, God. This isn't just something to, um, you know, uh, the hardest thing to do sometimes is to really capture the emotion of what these read or the, these writers are really trying to help us understand. If you were on, um, let's say you were on death, death row and a judge had known your full, the fullness of your crimes, seen all the evidence, and then out of nowhere decides to say, you know what, today I'm going to let you go free. That would produce within you this excitement, this joy, this sense of I've been set free. And so David is simply starting with a cry. The way that the only way that I could respond to God in the midst of my darkest moments is to cry out for help. Be gracious to me, O God. Notice that he's not starting with excuses. He's not starting with um, ways in which he's trying to explain away, well, you know that if she wasn't bathing on that, uh, on that balcony, then I wouldn't, even have, I wouldn't even have fell into that trap. David's not excusing or explaining away why he did what he did. All he's saying is, God, I, don't, I, I know what I've done is wrong, but God, I need help. God, I know what I've done is a violation of everything that you've taught me, but God, I need your help. Have Mercy on me, oh God. You see, when you're truly desperate, you just cry out. You know, you don't have to teach a baby to cry, right? There's just something innate about a child, a little baby, that when they have a need, they just cry out. When they're hungry and they want to be fed, they just cry out to somebody. When they need to be changed and they're wet or dirty, they just cry out to somebody for help. When they recognize that I'm lonely or I'm isolated, they just cry out to help. And you know why they, what's interesting about that is that they really have no full awareness of why or of who's going to help them. They're babies. They don't really know mommy and daddy yet. 
But they're crying out in hopes that their cry would land upon somebody's ears who, could, who is not only willing but is able to fix their circumstances. We can learn a lot from babies, can't we? And so the question that I think the text is going to, is going to bring forth to us is, who are you crying out to? Because we all cry out. It just manifests itself in different ways. When we find ourselves in trouble, you may cry out to your spouse. Baby, man, I'm really struggling right now. Things are hard. When you find yourself in trouble and somebody's committing a violent crime against you, you're going to call out by calling the police, right? It may be your best friend. It may be your pastor. It may be your counselor. But we know how to cry out. See, we don't have to be taught how taught to cry out, but we do have to be taught how to learn of who we should cry out to. David is saying that in my darkest moments, I had nowhere else to turn but to God. And it's at that moment that David has finally come to an end of himself that he's able to do two things. And the first is this. He's able to look up to God. He says, be gracious to me, O God. That word God right there. Is the Hebrew word for Elohim. And that word encompasses the, the, the totality of God's power and ability. It's the same word used in Genesis 1 for the God who creates all things. So when David is saying, be, be merciful to me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God. He's calling out to a God who is not only able, but is willing to do that which he is requesting of. He's calling out a God who has all of the power, all of the ability to actually fix what he's in need of. How much easier is it for us to cry out to God when we first take a moment to say, God, I need to be reminded of who you are. God, remind me of your bigness. Remind me that you are the same God who created the heavens and the earth with the breath of your mouth. Remind me that you're the same God who snatched me out of my sin depths, Lord, and saved me and brought me into your marvelous light. Remind me, oh God, that I'm not alone, that you've created a family of these folks. Remind me of your past works, God. The bigness of God informs his cry. He's crying out to the only one he knows can actually fix his circumstances. But not only that, but he looks back. He looks back at God's past works. And the reality, brothers and sisters, is that you and I, we're all going to find ourselves in a point of our, our, in a season with our walk with the Lord, where it's going to be hard to look forward at God's goodness. There's going to be these clouds covering up. God, where are you? God, why am I so lonely? God, what is going on? And it's going to be hard to see God's goodness in the future. But in those moments, we can look backwards. In those moments, we can look back at what God has done, not only in my life, but in the life of others. We can look back at the times. Um, um, well, let me backtrack. There are going to be times where as, you, as Christians, every single person in this room who professes to be a Christian, as you walk with Jesus, you're going to start building this catalog of experiences. You're going to start building this memory bank of what God has done in your life up until this moment. And there's going to be the, and in these moments, you're going to have to go way, way back even and say, God, God, help remind me about your past faithfulness. Help remind me about the time where I didn't know if I was going to be able to get back in school. 
The times where I was on academic probation, not for one time, but two times. And at the moment you saved me, I thought that the end of my co- this was the end of my college career. And it was at that moment that I cried out to God and said, God, if you would give me a second chance, I'll turn it all around. And you start to think about, man, and he did it. And he, and he made a way out of no way. And then you're able to point to another time where, God, I cried out and you did it. You made a way out of no way. And so in this time, when I find myself at the bottom, I can look backwards and say, God, if you made a way out of no way then, then you can make a way out of no way right now. Family, we don't need to just be reminded to pray. We need to be reminded to whom we are praying to. We need to be reminded of the God that we serve, that he's not restricted or confined to the pages of this book. This book testifies about who who he is. But what makes us different is that we get to actually experience the power of these words because they are part of our lives. That we look at the testimonies of those that came before us and we know that, God, if you are able to do this for them, then I can trust you to do it for me. He cries out to God, have mercy. But he pulls the, but what he's pulling from is according to your faithful love and according to your abundant compassion. You can't say that God, is, that God has abundant compassion if you never experienced his compassion. You can't say that God has abundant and faithful love if you've never experienced his faithful love. There's a point in time where the theories that you know about God will have to come into actual practice. Well, God will position you in such a way to where, yeah, sing about my faithfulness, but are you going to believe I'm faithful when you're in a moment where I don't seem to be faithful? There are dark times in the Christian life. David is reminding us that even in those dark moments, God is still in control. God is still in control. Now, this isn't to say that David hadn't spent time questioning. He hadn't spent times, sleepless nights, wondering, God, where are you? God, have you forgotten me? God, are you leaving me out to dry? God, where are you at? But David has gotten to a place where he realizes that, God, this isn't the first time I've sinned against you. This isn't the first time that I've done something completely rebellious towards you. And if you love me all the more, if you love me enough knowing that this would happen and yet you still call me to be yours, God, my sin didn't catch you off guard. You knew what you were getting into the moment that you committed to me. Do you think, do you, do you think of God in that way? That God has already seen your ugliness before he decided to become your God? That God has already, already knew everything that you had done and everything that you will do, and yet still commits to you, still offers love to you, still is going to be faithful to you when you're faithless, still is going to give you mercy when you don't deserve it, still is going to be gracious to you when you do everything to push him away. God knew you before he made you, and then he knew you before he called you. That's the love that God has for us. 
So much good stuff just in those three words, but I got to move forward. One more thing. When you read kind of how David is unpacking this song, he's crying out for mercy. But what's so interesting is that the very fact that David is crying out for mercy is a testament of mercy in and of itself. I don't think y'all heard that. The very way that David is crying out right now is a testament that God has already given him the very thing that he's asking for. Crying out for mercy is not something that you just naturally do. Recognizing your need from God is not something that you can manipulate or manufacture or create on your own. We're all dead in our sins. We all don't want God. The simple fact that David has gotten to a point where he can cry out to God for help is him showing us that, God, you've been at work even when I haven't been able to see it. How many of us came to faith thinking that, you know, sometimes we're arrogant in thinking that it was that moment that we heard the gospel, that 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 was when God worked in our lives. But if you think about it for a moment, how many times did you hear the gospel over and over and over again in your life before you actually believed it? How many times did grandma tell you, I've been praying for you? How many times was mama instructing you in God's word, praying that God would save you? How many times that if we look back that we're able to see that, man, God, you were at work beyond my own awareness. David's crying out to mercy is just the testament to saying God is at work in our lives prior to our own awareness of it. And that the simple fact, that's something to shout about. You're right. The simple fact that we get to that place where we recognize our need is just evidence that God had set his sight on us well before we even were aware of it. That's the goodness of our God. That when we find ourselves at the point in which we can cry out to him, brothers, just to know that God's already been working. He's already been working. If you're here today and you have other brothers and sisters that are Christians in your life, you may feel like you're the most isolated person in the room. But if you have people that you can point to that come to mind that you know are praying for you, that you know are calling you or sending you texts to invite you to church or or, or Wednesday night Bible study, that you know that you have a praying parents or praying parents, Know that God hasn't forgotten about you. Know that those things are evidences of God's grace in your life. God is at work well before we even are aware of it. And God knows he hasn't forgotten about you. Repentance begins when you're finally willing to admit, God, I need your help. God, I need your help. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, Blot out my rebellion, Lord. Completely wash away my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion. And my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. If crying out is our pathway towards forgiveness, then confession is our medicine or is the medicine for our souls. How many times have you been in a space with a bunch of friends, a bunch of people who you know are followers of Christ, and somebody asks you, how are you doing? And you just say, oh, I'm good. Or some rendition of that. 
knowing full well that your soul is drying up inside. Knowing full well that if they just pressed in just one question more, you would fall apart. Why do we do that? Why do we believe that faking and fronting is the way in which we're going to ultimately experience the healing that we're, that we're really wanting? Why do we feel as though we have to hide from one another as if everybody in this room isn't jacked up to begin with? I want y'all to take a moment real quick. Look to the left of you. Look to the right of you. Then look in the mirror and just say, we're all jacked up. You don't have to hide your sins. Your sins may be different, but they're an equal in offense. And so what does it look like for the church to now be the place where confession is a regular part of our lives? Where confession isn't just something between us and God alone, but when we actually come to our connection groups, when we actually hang out amongst believers, that it's an aspect of our time together. It's something that is just so regular that it's like, I don't have to be ashamed of my sin because every day or every week I'm talking to other sinners who experience the same grace and forgiveness that I'm in need of. That is, unfortunately, abnormal. We can sit in circles and we can theorize about all of the nuances of theology and doctrine and all this stuff and things. We may even pray for general issues going on in our lives, but we don't, we don't want to expose ourselves. We don't want to really let people into the worst of us because we fear men more than we fear God. The reality is, is that David had tried to hide his mess. He had tried. Look what he says in Psalm 32, 3 through 4. And he says, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groanings all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me, pressing me down. My strength was drained as in the summer heat. When we hide our sin and try to cover it up, we ain't hurting nobody but ourselves. We ain't hurting nobody else but ourselves. And the reality is that many of us are not experiencing the joy and the peace and all of the fruits that God wants us to have because we would rather pretend to be holy than actually be holy. And the, the, the disconnect is that we think that our holiness is connected to our actual behavior. God says you're holy because of what Christ has done. Everybody in here is in process. Everybody in here is not perfect. And so when you confess your sin, all you're acknowledging is, God, I believe who you say I am. God, I believe who you say you are. And God, I want to believe about who we are. God says that the church is filled of broken, needy sinners. The only difference between those in here that really are Christians and those out there is that we just admit that we need help. We just admit that we trust that God has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And as a result, when we sin, we repent. When we sin, we confess that, God, I believe what I did is wrong because you said it is wrong, and I just bring it to your attention. David is saying that, man, I've done. I'm tired. I'm tired of faking. I'm tired of fronting. I'm tired of acting like I got it all together. I'm tired of that. 
And there are many of us in here that we've been tired of that too. We've been tired of faking. We've been tired of trying to come up with clever and crafty prayers that would impress our hearers. We've been tired of trying to read books just so we can articulate loftiness to others to impress them. We're tired of of going through the motion after motion, being at everything, thinking that that's what's going to attribute or that's what's going to give us our identity and our acceptance. And David has said, I tried that, man. And I'm tired of that. I ain't got, I don't have enough time to be fake. Who am I being faking, who am I faking it for? Have you ever found that it's so easy to lie and pretend with us? But when you kneel before God and you really start talking to him, the truth is like, it just starts, you, you know you can't tell God I ain't got time. You know I can't tell God, God, well, she just, he just did this and, you know, can't lie to God. You know God knows all your dirt. Confession is risky, and David has risked it all. Mind you, this is a song that it wasn't like some A-track or some, like, vinyl that after David died, somebody was cleaning up the palace and like, oh, look at this track. Man, this is dope. Let me publish this. No, this was David that said, man, I've, I've been broken. And i got to put my business out there so that, that people can look at my life and they can see a God who can restore. I need to publish this for all believers. And he wrote this song to be played in the temple courts over and over and over and over again. Confession is risky. It may very well cost us the respect that the people that we love have for us. It may very well cost us our positions, our platforms, our influence. It it, it may mean lost opportunities, jobs, relationships, whatever. But more important than all that, it can cost you intimacy with God. To not do it can cost intimacy with God. Our confession reminds us of our deep need for God. If you find yourself to just Man, you just feel like, man, pride is just something that I constantly battle with. We all are prideful. We all are. But if you find yourself that when you hear about other people's sin, something puffs up within you and you think, well, I don't do that. You know what you can probably pinpoint that to? Your lack of time of actually confessing your own sin. there's There's an element of confession that God uses as a gift for us to humble us. You can't look up to any, look at, you can't point your nose up at anybody else's sin when you're focused on all your own dirt. But confession isn't just meant to be between us and God. Confession is something meant to be communal. James 5, 16 tells us that if we confess our sins one to another, that we can actually be healed. That there's a reality that God is going to use you exposing yourself to others to be the primary vehicle through which he gives you the healing you search for. How has hiding that pornography addiction worked so far? 
How has covering up that guy or girl that you've been sexually intimate with, knowing that it's wrong but you don't want to give it up, how has that worked for you? How has that drug addiction that you don't want anybody else to find out so you just hide it away and tuck it away, how has keeping that to yourself, how has that worked for you? Let us not allow our reputations to be fun- to function more as our God than God himself. At some point, we've got to be willing to die to our own reputations and know that our commendation comes from God. That nobody else in this room will be with you when you stand before God to give an account. God's going to deal with you and you alone. So as hard as it is to not want to popularity... As hard as it is to not want acceptance, as hard as it is to not want many friends, the reality is those are good things, but keep them in perspective. We care about the audience of one. We are concerned first and foremost with the audience of one, and that's the one that saved us. They didn't spill your blood. They didn't spill their blood for your sin. They didn't die on the cross for your sins. They don't even pay your bills. Surely you desire or against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And so you are right when you pass sentence on me. You would be blameless in your judgment. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born and I was sinful. When my mother conceived me. Brothers, you may do some wicked things against one another. We all will. But the reality is that when you're broken, you come to the place where you recognize that your only real offense is against a holy and perfect God. We're in a time, even within the church, where people don't want to talk about sin. To discuss sin or confess it or to even bring it up is seemed as though, man, man, forget that. Let's get to grace. Let's get to love. Y'all, you wouldn't know what love and grace were without sin. You wouldn't even have the fullness of the gospel without sin. The gospel doesn't begin with sin, but it does address it. The gospel starts with God, but then it points us towards human action, rebellion. And then it brings in the ushering of good news in a Savior who has lived his life perfectly and fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of God. And then as he dies, as he's brutally murdered, he resurrects after three days and offers to anyone who would cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. Forgiveness. This church will always be a church where we teach the fullness of God's gospel. We will not shy away from addressing the very things that God has addressed all through this book. If you ever get to a place where you're tired of hearing about sin, brother, sister, be careful. Sin is to be taken seriously. Sin is to constantly be on our awareness because the reality is that when we look at our sin, we don't keep our attention there. 
we gaze at it, but then we looked up at God's mercy for us. Seeing how wicked we are allows us to see how good and holy God is. Why would he want to have anything to do with us? You can't appreciate forgiveness if you don't know that you've broken laws that deserve condemnation. David says, my offense is against you, God. I, I see that now. My, the guilt of what I've done because I know I've offended you, because I love you. I, that, that's haunting me, God. Help me. And so he cries out. Then he confesses where he's at. God, I know I'm not where I want to be. I know I'm not who I want to be. I know what I've done has broken and shattered a relationship with you. But God, I just got to, I want to bring that out into the open. I just don't, I just want to say, God, I don't have it all together. God, I know I've offended you and I want to confess that, God. That's for him. That's to help him. He doesn't want to feel the guilt of having to hide and conceal. He's like, I just got to, I don't care who hears it. This is who I am. But lastly, I'll just stop there. He had told us what his grief and his guilt had been doing, drying up his bones. Like he had just been, 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 been becoming this prune, this raisin of sorts. But then later in Psalm, that same Psalm 32, he says, but then I acknowledged my sin to you and I didn't conceal my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave my sin. He tasted the sweetness of God. That God, you saw all of me, and yet you love me still. Tim Keller would say it like this, that repentance is like antiseptic. You pour the antiseptic onto a wound, and at first it stings, but then it heals. I know I've got Tim Keller as a witness, but let me bring one more in. Charles Spurgeon says, it does not spoil your happiness to confess your sin. The unhappiness is in not making the confession. Confess your condition to God and confess your condition to one another. That is where we find our healing. That is where God works on our behalf to conform us and to mold us and to make us more like his son, Jesus. David had learned that. And then lastly, cling. Cry out, confess to God and others, and then cling. Rick Warren says this, you will never know that God is an all you need until God is all you have. Many of us have heard that quote, but I think it rings truer and truer the longer you walk with Jesus. There's this pruning season where God starts stripping you of the things that you thought mattered. Approval and status and a nice house and a good job and you, you name it. Nice clothes and straight teeth and straight hair and nails did, hair did, everything did. All of those things. And then there's moments that as you age in your relationship with Christ and as God brings you to maturity that you're like, man, none of that matters. It doesn't matter. 
yeah, they're nice to have, but at the end of the day, without God, what, what are those things? How many people do you know that have all of those things and are just depressed and miserable? That they thought all they wanted was wealth and riches. And then once they had it, they don't even have anybody to share it with. They don't even have anybody that they can be generous towards because they've just severed every relationship in order to get to the top. How many of y'all have had those moments? And if you're in the room and you haven't had that yet, brother and sister, just know it's going to come. They will come. Give it time. David has reached to the place where nobody else could he turn to but God. There's no one else I can look to for help but God. There's nobody else I can cry out to but God. And so he goes on the rest of this chapter and we're going to run through it. The rest of this chapter is just truths about God that, and there are things about God that only God can do. So I just want you to, as I read this, as I'm, I'm going to point out the actual verbs that David uses and the things that he's asking God for that he's clinging on to. As he says, surely you desire integrity in the inner self, wisdom deep within. Purify me, God. Wash me. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let me rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast right spirit within me. Restore joy of your salvation. Sustain me, God. Save me, God. Open my lips to sing your praises, God. Cause Zion, cause this city to prosper, God. Build these walls, God and God and God and God. Brokenness leads you to a place where you have to depend upon God for everything. You can be in your car and you can recite the lyrics to Jodeci or whatever. But unless God blesses you in the midst of your suffering, it's only there that you'll be able to sing that in spite of what's going on in my life, I can still sing praises to my God. That you may be so low and so broken that you... that that that. That what's evidence of God's work in your life is that he can still cause you to sing his praises. That God, you're still good in spite of what I'm going through. And God, not only are you still good, but I'm going to continue to trust that what my circumstances look like right now will not be the case for long. I can bless him even though I wish it would have. I wish God could have gotten me to this place through different circumstances. You ever felt like that? Like, you saw that, dang, I was stupid. Why did I, why did I put myself through that? But then you're in a place of sobriety. You're like, God, that's probably what it took. God, you, you knew that it would take all of that to bring me here. And I could focus on Trying to change the past. I could focus on trying to think of ways I could have done things differently. But God, God, I'm not going to spend my energy doing that. God, I'm just going to worship you because at least I'm finally here. The bottom of David's pit allowed him to testify to us about the length and the width and the breadth and the height of God's love. 
And David concludes with this. He says, God, if you, if, if you forgive me, if you grant me this mercy, God, I'm going to go and tell everybody. God, I'm going, to t- I'm going to tell everybody about what you've done for me. Isn't that the motivation for ministry? Isn't that missions? Isn't that why we want to tell people about Jesus? Isn't it, God, I was raped when I was younger, but God, you saved me and you restored me. And so, God, because you did that, I want to go and help somebody else. I want them to know you as that God. God, I know that everybody else said that I wasn't going to be nothing. I know that everybody had, had dismissed me because of the way I look or the way that I talk or my education. But, God, you saved me because you saved me. And I experienced you as my healer, as my redeemer, as my lover of my soul. God, I'm going to just go tell somebody else in that same situation. I just want to encourage them about God. If you could do it for me, then you can do it for them. God, I know that. I've had a baby out of wedlock. I know that it was wrong. I know that the father wants nothing to do with me. But God, you, you saved me. God, you took me in to be, be, to be your own. You made me a daughter. You gave me a family. And so now I can go to other mothers and I can tell you, if God did it for me, then he can do it for you. Isn't this what missions is all about? God calling us to be his witnesses. To be broken, built back up, and then sent out. To be broken, built back up sent out to go and declare to others there's a God out there who understands where you're at, who understands where you're going through. We don't know why he allowed it, but he did. But I can tell you what, he can use even that for your good. That's what we do. So family, if you hear nothing else, what we learn from the life of David, what we see is this pushing forward of David calling out for promises from God of mercy and grace. But the good news that if you're a Christian is like you've received all of those things. Through Jesus, we have the mercy and the grace that is sufficient to cover all of our sins. That our name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. That we will stand face to face with our God one day and we will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so, if you find yourselves in the pit, if you find yourself in the place where it seems as though God is distant, He's abandoned you. Know that he hasn't. God is sovereign, not just of your peaks, but he's sovereign in the valley. He's sovereign, not just in the green pastures, but he's sovereign over your wildernesses. God will bring you through. He will bring you through. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that you remind us that we can cry out to you that we can freely confess our deepest and darkest and greatest offenses to you and to those you've provided us, Father. I pray that there will be a freedom found today to truly repent, God, that we will repent as those who are in desperate need of mercy and that we will be reminded as well that, Father, the multitudes of our sins are no match for the multitudes of your mercy, that you, God, are abundant in your grace. And that, God, we don't have to be fearful when we come to you, but we can be free when we come to you, knowing, knowing 
that you open your arms wide and you welcome all those who would cry out to you in faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.